Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? It's uh, What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing. And this week, I sound like I'm in a fishbowl because I'm getting over a cold, but on this episode are Board on the Air, Board Game Community Show, Meeple and the Moose, Dice and Dragons, The Meeple Dungeon, All games new and old. Definitely a board game podcast. Board game hot takes. The tabletop bellhop. And cardboard conjecture. And please, take a second, have a look at the show notes. There's links. And, uh, yeah, enjoy. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Bored in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon, and this is What Have You Been Playing? On this week's episode, we are talking about... Crusaders, Thy Will Be Done. And more specifically, the new expansion, Divine Influence. Uh, This is a game from Tasty Minstrel Games, now from Renegade Games, and the designer is Seth Yaffe. Uh, It's a one to four player game. And it's a rondelle game. So if you aren't familiar with what a rondelle game is, your actions are in a wheel. And most of it revolves around how you're moving your action things around that wheel. To yeah, it end. uses a Moncala rondelle. So you're picking up all your cubes and then spreading them out. And whatever you land on, that's the action you get to take. Based on how many cubes are already there. Yeah. With that one, I guess. But Yeah, so there's six main actions. Or six? No. Five main Five actions. Five main actions. Uh, you can explore or move, influence, uh, get influence, which is victory points or yeah, uh, other uh, stuff. Crusade. There is building, and then the last one is mar- marshaling or mustering. Yes, uh, I have the deluxe edition, uh, the Kickstarter edition. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, lots of metal coins, uh, plastic minis, uh, uh, solid wooden uh, pieces for the different armies that you're fighting. Yeah. Uh, solid, solid game. That's one that uh, we've enjoyed for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I had heard that the expansion was made for a long time, but it got caught up in Tasty Minstrel's uh, bankruptcy or closing down. Uh, and I had heard it was printed and ready to go and Renegade... Picked it up finally and brought it across. And it's funny because the box even say, st- says Tasty Minstrel on it. <laughs> uh, so the expansion. What does it add, Jordan? So the main thing the expansion adds is two, basically two big things. It changes up the influence action from the base game where in the base game all it does is get you victory points. Now there's something on the board that it affects what you're, you can do with your influence action. Where there's these tiles all around the board, and you spend action cubes to take them, and they can be one-time effects, 
instant effects. Well, they're all one time, I guess, anyways. But yeah. instant, permanent, uh, one time, activate at your choice. Yeah, it, it, it gives some stuff that sort of breaks the rules of the game a little bit. Yeah, and you just take the influence action, pick it up, and then put a shield down. And yeah. what that does is make it, when you're moving, it's cheaper. Exactly. Uh, the other thing it adds is four new sets of buildings, all which have their own abilities when they're put out, but they can be built on anybody's location that has a building of the depicted type. Yeah, so the, the meat of this game, from the base game to this, is putting out buildings. Uh, what this expansion does is add a second set of buildings that sort of piggyback on the original buildings. Yeah, it's uh, cheaper to put them where those original buildings are as long as they match the type. Like, the top one can only be built where the castles are and the second one can only be built where the chapels are. Yeah, I didn't find that the expansion added any more difficulty or any more complexity. No. Uh, I found that it, it just made for a lot more decisions. And, and it found, I found that when I went to a space, I stayed there for longer. Yeah, usually with this game, if you have, let's say you have two of your knights out and you're running around the board, they go somewhere, kill the guy, build, continue on. Now you're there, you're like, okay, do I beat the guy now? Or do I take the influence action, take the influence first, and then maybe just move away? Or do I beat the guy, put the thing down, and then try and build my second thing on there? Yeah, so on the map, each space basically has three different things you can go once you get to a spot. Mm -hmm. and, and it just... It, it didn't cause you to spread out as fast, I found. You, you still spread out a bit more than the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, you won. Yeah. I would say the big thing that helped me in that one is I, I fought a few more of them sooner with them. A few more of the enemies, because they can give you a lot of points if you beat the higher level ones. Yeah, and I, I think me and your mom both got caught up in... Making sure everything was done, then continuing on. Yeah, like... we. We weren't going as hard after the points trying to get more in-game points, but uh, by that point, we were, always, we were already a little bit behind. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, it was about 10 points from first to last. Which somewhat could be related to uh, getting more the most of two of the types for... Yeah, there, there was uh, the battling and stuff like that. You, you definitely had a bit of an advantage over us. Uh, I know Mum and me both missed a few points as we were playing the game, because mm -hmm. as you do... It's it's very point salady as you do something you're gonna get points. Yeah, and the, uh, and the timer is you set start with a set number of points. Once those are gone, the game ends. Yeah, at the end of the round, everyone gets it ends, and then you continue. Then you count up. Yeah, with a few bonus end game points, which are just majorities of you've killed most of this enemy, most of this enemy, most of this enemy, or now most influence tokens. Yeah, at most you're going to get 20 points at the end of the game, and that's if you win all of them, which, which you're not going to. No. Uh, that is Crusaders, I Will Be Done, and the expansion Divine Influence. Uh, big fan. Yeah. Looking forward to playing it some more. Yeah, I really love the game, and I like the different factions. They're probably one of my... Yeah, it does add it adds more variety with the expansion as well. My faction was pretty funky compared to your guys's. Yeah. Hey, I'm David and I'm Jordan and we will talk to you next week.
Hi, it's Riley Stock from the Board Game Community Show. I'm back for another What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And What I've Been Playing is The Grand Carnival on the Road. That game hasn't come out. It was a Kickstarter earlier this year. I went to a design meeting and Rob Kramer was there and he had brought his game and the expansion stuff that he's been working on to play test it. So I got to play test it there. I had never played the Grand Carnival base game. And so it was really cool to be able to play the base game and the expansion stuff. And one of the questions I would have, because I ask this every time I get a new expansion, is can I teach the game with the expansion or will that add too much weight to it? The expansion is so great because it feels like it is a part of the game. Uh, You know, like I never played the other one before, but it was not super complicated. It didn't seem super confusing. It The main thing it changed was the scoring. You know, you'll be able to add different ways of scoring points, which adds a lot of variety to the game of how you're going to build your carnival. So in the game, you are building your carnival. Guests are going to walk through it. You need to make sure that you've got a good pathway for the guests to get through so that they can walk through grassy areas, pass by and stop at attractions, giving them tickets, which tickets turn into points. If they can make it all the way to the end and get to the big top, then they can score even more points. But each attraction can only hold so many amounts of tickets. Attractions are polyomino tiles that you'll put on top of your area. You have to put foundation tiles on there. That might sound confusing, but when you're playing the game, it makes a lot of sense. And visually, if I could show you the components, it would make more sense. But there are five different sizes of polyomino attractions, starting from one, going up to five. The game is played over a week. A week? What? No, that's too long. Well, one round is a day in this. And so you're playing through Sunday through Saturday on your player board. You've got your carnival grounds that you have to build out. And then right to the left of that is one, two, three, four, five. So that's the strength of your actions. So if I take a worker on my turn and I'm like, I'm going to put it on two, then I could get a one or a two polyomino attraction and build it in my carnival. Or I could take a foundation tile and put it in there. I could move a guest two spaces and then wherever they stop, if they're stopped by an attraction, they're gonna give tickets to that attraction. But attractions can only hold as many tickets as their sizes. So one ticket per one square. So a three polyomino attraction can hold three tickets. I think this creates some really clever decisions because do you want to start out and grab a five-size polyomino? Do you want to move your guests quickly through the carnival and get them to the big top and score some points off that? Do you want to try and fill in your carnival the best you can so that there's no empty spaces because construction zones will count as negative one point per mallet showing. So Another visual thing that would be kind of tricky for me to talk about with the time that I have. So having not played the original game, I can't say exactly what was base game and what was expansion, but I feel like for the expansion, they either added the golden tickets and or peanuts. Peanuts essentially let you add power to your strength. So if I stopped by a concession booth with a guest, then I would place a ticket and then gain a peanut. And then later I could spend that peanut when I'm using my action. So if I select a two, I can use a peanut and up that to a three or spend three peanuts and go up to a five. Golden tickets are worth more points and you earn those by 
placing barkers, which barkers are those people with the the cones that, hey, step right up, step right up, play this game. If a guest stops by a barker and an attraction, then you will place a golden ticket. And that's worth more points at the end of the games. But that also counts towards the ticket limit as well. Uh, I think one of the big things that changes is the scoring. So there are a lot of different ways to score. And we tested out one that I think is just temporarily called Triangle City. So in it, we scored one point per ticket, two points per golden ticket. Guests at the big top got an incremental scoring thing. So one would just be worth two. Two in the big top would be six. Three would be worth 10. So it just kind of scales as you get more people in there. And then each set of unique attractions. So by size. So if I had a complete set of one through five polyominoes, that would be worth 21 points. If I had two sets, that would be worth 42 points total. If I had one complete set of one through five, I'd still get that 21 points. And then I had another set that was one through three, then I would get 10 points for that. So it there's a lot of different ways to like, do I want to try and get just a bunch of small sets? Do I want to try and get all the big sets? And then you would get negative two points for each visible mallet. After you've finished the week, you score it all up. There's a lot of interesting decisions. How many ma visible mallets do I want to build all of my foundation cards? I can't remember what they're called, but there were kind of goal cards during the game so that if you had, let's say if you had like three guests past the midpoint, then I get to put a token on this card and now I get its ability. And the ability might be something like, now your guests can move diagonal or now your guests can move over construction zones. They are really helpful. But then the other players, they have one turn to finish that goal. And if they can, then they get to put their token on that and they have that ability for the rest of the game. Maybe that's not worth it to them. I did back this project. I am really excited for it to deliver whenever it does. I think it'll be a hit with my wife. Whether you're just going to get the base game, that might be enough for people, or you might still be able to late pledge and get the expansion. Or maybe you buy the base game and then late pledge and just get the expansion instead of both. That might have been smarter for me to do. I don't know. Although there is some like updated artwork, some updated meeples in the newer base game. So I think that's why I ended up doing that. Yeah, let's go with that. So there you go. The Grand Carnival on the road. Really, really fun. Really looking forward to seeing what more he adds to the game. I've been Riley from the Board Game Community Show. You can catch new interviews every week on Friday. I interview people throughout the board game community. Last week was Patrick Leader, and that's what I've been playing. Until next time, keep nerding out. Hello. My name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeeplingTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk to you today about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week, I got to play Draft and Write Records by Brucio Marcel and published by Inside Up Games. This was a prototype copy that I received for review purposes ahead of their crowdfunding campaign, which starts September 27th, so yesterday if you listen to this the day it releases. Draft and Write Records is exactly what it says on the box. A drafting take on the roll or flip and write genre. In Draft and Write Records, you begin with a large sheet of paper and a few colored pencils. Each round, players all draw five cards, then select one and pass their hand around the table. 
Simultaneously, players reveal the card they chose, fill out the corresponding action sheet, and after four actions have been taken, that fifth card is tossed into a shared discard pile, and then all players evaluate if they've achieved any of the four goals in the common area. Any goals that have been achieved are then discarded, and the goal roll is filled back up, and then play starts again. Draft and write records continues on until one player has achieved six goals, or one player has made five mistakes, or one player has managed to fill in all of their banned slots. At that point, everyone tallies up their score, and whoever has the most points has drafted the best band and is the winner of the game. A major component of the roll and write or flip and write genre of games is the combo-tastic result of earning bonuses that you can then roll into more bonuses, which draft and write records does quite well. The cards you're drafting represent which section of the sheet you can cross off and what icon on that section you, you get to work with. Each section of the sheet works slightly differently and will dole out bonuses at different rates. The cards let you directly affect the three of the sections, forming your band, managing your assets, and planning a schedule, while the bonuses you earn will have you creating harmonies, releasing albums, and going on tour. Draft and Write Records is fast and easy to play. I really dig the art by Pedro A. Alberto. While personally I have no love for the theme, being musically challenged, I've never aspired to being in a band, it was still fun to play. I spent too much time focusing on building up my band and ended up losing to someone who only had two musicians but had the best gear and went on a world tour. Chaining the rewards from your actions is immensely satisfying. With a single action, you can start a cascade, which is my favorite part of any blank and write game. The goal deck is thick at 66 cards, all trying to lead you down different paths to score points. All that being said, if you really enjoy that verb and write genre of games, I think Draft and Write Records is up your alley. You can check them out on Kickstarter on September 27th. The next game I played is New York Zoo by Uwe Rosenberg. Now, this is not Uwe Rosenberg's first foray into the polyomino tile placement games, nor is it his first time tasking players with figuring out the nuances of animal husbandry. I've played a lot of Uwe Rosenberg games like Patrick Agricola, Caverna, A Feast for Odin, Fields for Arl, and Cottage Garden to name just a couple. In New York Zoo, players are tasked with designing an animal park. Players will place enclosures, breed animals, and drain their zoos of animals to embrace the sweet taste of capitalism? Look, the theming is all weird here. Your action selector is an elephant roaming around a central board. You take polyomino tiles and place them into your construction area, or you can stop on a blue space to acquire two animals. You'll place animals out into your enclosures, and as the elephant passes certain points on the board, it'll trigger a breeding phase for that specific animal that was depicted. As soon as an enclosure is filled, you drain all the animals off that enclosure and place an attraction like a roller coaster or a hot dog cart into your park. When someone's park has been completely filled in, the game is over and that player has won. New York Zoo feels a lot like Patchwork in that the polyomino tile laying puzzle is front and center. Gathering animals and generating the animal breeding engine feels tertiary, but at the same time, it's incredibly important. There are lots of little rules that made learning New York Zoo really difficult. A lot of requirements and restrictions that didn't really make sense until halfway through our first play. Now, I've only played New York Zoo once, but I'm not convinced of significant depth or mastery available. There's certainly no discovery after the first play. What you see is what you'll get. It'll be difficult to justify coming back to New York Zoo when there are other polyomino games that I enjoy more, like Baron Park, and other Uwe Rosenberg games that I enjoy more, like Agricola. At the very least, New York Zoo has some adorable animal meeples. The last game of the week was War Chess by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson. 
At the end of our game night, we had about 30 minutes to play a two-player game. So my opponent, Otter, had been wanting to try War Chess for a while. As he's a big fan of Hive and Onitama, it seemed like a perfect fit. For those who haven't played, War Chess is a bag-building territory control asymmetric war game. In War Chess, players both receive or draft a hand of four cards, dictating which units they'll have available to them for the duration of the game. Each unit has a certain number of discs or chips. The game begins with two discs of each unit in your bag along with your personal royal chip, and every round players will draw three chips from their bag. Players alternate taking turns, playing one of their chips to do one of the available actions, and then when both players' hands have been depleted, they draw three more chips to continue. War Chest ends when someone controls six points on the board. The actions you can do with each chip are varied. If you discard the chip face down, you can put one of the chips that you have in your reserve into your discard pile to be shuffled into your bag once it's depleted, or you can take the initiative, allowing you to go first in the next round. You can place your chip onto the board to deploy or bolster, which is either placing your chip onto a spawn point that you control, or creating a stack of chips that is harder to kill. Finally, discarding a chip face up allows you to maneuver an identical chip that you've already deployed. A maneuver allows a chip to move, attack, control, or use their character specific tactics action. I really enjoy War Chest. I like the interactions and the tension that the game creates. You and your opponent will slowly move towards the center of the board, keeping just out of reach of the other player's attack range. There is a fair amount of luck in the game in that in order to do anything on the board, you need to draw the chip that matches the character that you want to do something. Uh, that luck helps create tension as you push yourself into a mutually dangerous position. You'll be calculating the probability of drawing that one chip in your bag that you'll need, and if you're successful, slay the opponent. If you fail, you'll be knocked back. Chips that are attacked get removed from the game entirely, making each battle in War Chest consequential. Not only have you lost your position on the board, but now that unit has left less chips in your bag. Otter enjoyed the game, and he conceded that if we played more two-player games, he'd be very interested in diving deeply into the war chest system. But currently, it doesn't supplant Hive or Onitama as his go-to abstract strategy games. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them on my blog, meepleinthemoose.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Moose People or on Instagram at Meeple and the Moose. Have a happy Wednesday. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? Point Salad. Now, this is published by Alderac Entertainment Group, also known as AEG. The designers of the game are Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, and Sean Stankwich. And we were lucky enough to have some time off finally this year, and we were able to get this game to the table with the family. And I gotta say, it went over fairly well. It did. Honestly, uh, when Jason described it to me, I was like, if we do it? Um, but it's a really easy game to play. Uh, it's really fast paced. Um, and, uh, and it plays quickly. So Fast paced, plays quickly. No, you well, see a theme here. <laughs> no, it's fast paced in the sense of the gameplay is fast. There's, it, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity for analysis paralysis. Um, you know, you, you can get the, you, the game flows quickly there. 
Mm-hmm. How do Agreed. you like that one? So, I mean, there's not a lot to say about it. You're you're basically just trying to get as many points as possible. Uh, I will say that there is a fair amount of luck in it. I mean, there's a little bit of you know making the right choices uh, with what you have available, but. You know, the first game we played, um, my mother picked up something. We were playing with my parents. My mother picked up something. I already had a card that was giving me points. She didn't notice. She wasn't playing to, to, to block me. That's not her style. But she started collecting exactly what I was wanting to collect and needing to collect. So when she's before me, she's picking up the card. now. Yeah, right before. Like It's not like one or two players, so stuff cycles. No, she would pick up the card and you wouldn't get what you wanted. Unless it came up again uh, when something was... So, needless to say, I did not win that game. Um, And I didn't win a bunch of games. I came in absolutely last in every game we played except for one, where I won. So... You know, take that in mind when I when I uh, give this the score. Uh, that I would I would say, you know what? Let's just cut to the chase. I still enjoyed the game, <laughs> despite the fact that I lost. And you know, one of the games I would say the one game I didn't enjoy, we did we didn't follow the rules. And I think that's something important to say. Yes, and I was going to get there. So we just decided to mix the entire deck in and throw all the cards in playing. Uh, with four players, which is something that you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to do that when you play a six-player game. And luck was on my side that game because literally someone would try to block me and something just as good or better would show up. And I just ran away with it with an insane amount of points. Like, no one was even close. So follow the rules. Even if you have to shuffle up the cards a little bit more uh, to add some variety in terms of what you're seeing, but playing with a full stack, full stack of cards when you're not at the right player count will definitely throw off the balance. Every game that we played when we had the proper amount of cards was fairly close. You have people that was like anywhere around, let's say like 50 points ranging down to like the high 30s. Like no one was completely out of it. Like one better point card, a uh, couple different choices over there like might have gotten them in the game or might have swung the game in their favor. So that is a really big important factor. The game is very easy to debalance. And you know, there there was the player sometimes, yeah, what do the game designers know? What do you have to get rid of these six cards? Oh boy, yes, it matters. Yeah, I mean it's and it was but more than six cards, but yeah it it's well, six cards per vegetable. It you know, and so I mean it's a little strange the vegetable concept that I mean we were making fun of some of them uh, at some point you know my I was making uh, an onion tomato salad I yes mean, just onions and tomatoes basically. didn't I have like a cabbage and beet salad only there's no beets I don't think no onions I had a cabbage and onion salad that's yeah. right and no, it's purple so purple and purple and reddish purple, purple I don't know yeah like, that else. being said you know it plays really fast it's really easy it's not complex it's a you know a low low complexity game uh, so you can you know you can teach it to basically anybody it says ages eight and above honestly I think in a few years our little guy will be able to and he won't play this game and he won't be eight um, no because a lot of it is just pattern matching and pattern recognition I get this many cards and I get this many points. Now the point part might be a little bit tricky for younger players, but with a parent assisting them or adult assisting them, it'd be very easy to play. This is the game that I know is gonna be staying around in our collection. Just because of how well it goes 
over with family. Like we had a lot of fun playing this. It went over with your parents, very easy to play, very balanced, which is one of the things that I find when it comes to short games like this. It's very rare that the game comes out with everyone, you know, in the game all the way through. And if I remember correctly, everybody won a game, so that makes it, you know. No, no, your mom did not win a game, unfortunately. She tied me, but then you just had to beat her. There's this little war going on between Julie and her mom when they play games that are competitive games. And they try to pretend it's not happening, but it definitely happened when she fed you to the dragon. Yes. And it's kind of kept on since then. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I would say if you have an opportunity to get this game, I think uh, it makes sense, and I would uh, I would definitely recommend it. Now, and you can take a well, sorry, keep your eyes and ears out for our review. It's going to be coming out the week after this releases. Now, all this stuff is being recorded a little bit out of order, but we're trying to time our releases as best as possible. So the plan is you're going to hear this, and then our review will be out the following day. And with that being said, don't forget. Keep playing games. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And we've been playing one game in particular uh, lately. What game is that, Anna Marie? That game is Trekking Through History, designed by Charlie Bink. Art by Eric Hibbler and published by Underdog Games. Mm-hmm. Trekking through history from Underdog Games. This is a cool one. This is one, a game that you um, were uh, very interested in. Yeah. And <clears throat> did we pre-order this? I don't remember. Um. Yep. Yeah, we did. And then, um, yeah, it's it's been cool. We've been playing it a bunch. Um, do you want to explain some of how it works? Yeah. I'll give a little blurb here, kind of. Oh yeah, what's, so a little bit of the theme here. Yeah. What's going on? Um, welcome to Wayback Tours. You're about to go on a three-day tour of history, traveling thousands of years in a time machine to experience great moments from our past. Trekking through history takes place in three rounds, each representing one day of your trip. Each day, you'll visit a series of historical events, spending a different number of hours at each. Along the way, you'll score points for sticking to your itinerary and visiting historical events in chronological order. Yeah, so it's a time traveling game. Time traveling yeah, cannot go wrong with time traveling. Yeah, and you're going through legitimate um, moments in history. Moments in history, yeah, dating back to like like oh. thousands of years. Oh yeah, the they have a, a card in here, and it tells you um, the earliest it goes back is thirty seven thousand bce <laughs> which is pretty cool that's crazy yeah the way the, okay so the way this game works is you're going to end up having what she said earlier these itineraries um and those itineraries are going to be basically your objectives that you're trying to um achieve throughout, achieve yeah throughout, throughout your day. different treks yeah and you're going to do these three uh different days and you can do a bunch of different treks in these days but you only have Three days time to do all the things that you want to do. Yeah. And your itinerary is kind of setting you uh, with a goal of what you want to go and what you want to see. each particular day. Yeah. And then uh, the board is going to get laid out, which is a nice neoprene mat. And it's going to have a tableau of cards on it that are going to represent all these different times in history. And those uh, are not just times, but different events in history. Right. And they are going to have on them, uh, yeah, a time, uh, like a date. 
yeah. then a how many hours of the day it takes you to travel, uh, there. travel there and do whatever you need to do. And then a couple like resources at the bottom. And, and on the top, it gives you just a little snippet of what moment in time this is. Yes. It'll say like, uh, I don't know, visiting Looking, King Tut yeah. or something. And then yeah. it'll say the date. And then um, the art reflects King Tut. And then on the back of the card, there's a little blurb about King about, Tut. Like, yeah. More of like a paragraph yes. explaining things about King Tut, yeah. which is pretty cool. And yeah, you're going to... The whole point of this is to collect the cards from the tableau on your turn. You're basically going to be taking a card and that card is going to uh, dictate how far along in your day, you, how many hours you've used up because you only have 12 hours you can spend per day. And then it's going to give you those um, resource icons, which you are going to start filling out uh, your, your itinerary. And you're trying to match up the icons on those cards with the ones that are on your itinerary. They can give you a bunch of points. Yeah. And then also you have to keep your treks in chronological order. So if you did take that King Tut card from that time frame, the next card you take would have to be er, like uh, later, later in time uh, than that one. So you'd have to look at which ones are there and and uh, for your next turn to make sure you're grabbing another a card that is yeah, uh, closer to our current time than yeah. King Tut. If no cards... Um, fit so like if you if there is no card in the tableau that you can choose because there are no later dates than what you currently have you can go visit your ancestors yeah and that's a, a set it takes three hours out of your day and yeah it's kind of like a just a wild card it's like a time placeholder almost yeah to try and extend your current trek because at the end of the game for all the different treks that you've gone on all these different basically it's little collections of cards um, you're going to get score a whole bunch of different points depending on how big you may have made one of those yeah, treks. Yeah, like how long your trek was, like how many, yeah. how many stops you made. And you can have up to, say, 10 cards in a trek is going to give you 30 points. And then um, if you had, like, say, five cards in a trek, you might get, like, eight points. And if you have one card, you're going to get minus three. Yeah, so you're trying to make <laughs> these long treks as uh, long as possible to get mm -hmm. as many points as possible. But there's a whole bunch of different ways to get points, and it's really, really cool. I really enjoyed it. Um, and we did uh, our full review of this on our last episode of the Meeple Dungeon podcast. So if you want to hear more about it there. It's episode um, 44, I believe. Yes, I believe episode yeah. 44. Uh, Tracking Through History review. And um, yeah, you can hear a ton about it there. We, uh, we talked a lot about it there. Um, and yeah, we're headed off to Shucks here in a few days yeah. and we are going to be playing a whole bunch of games down there. So, so we'll have some good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good we'll podcast, more, good, good uh, content for you coming yeah, up Yeah, coming soon. up on the next uh, episode <laughs> and on our next uh, uh, podcast of the Meeple Dungeon podcast that we record after that. We'll have a bunch of cool stuff to talk about. Yeah. It'll be a full coverage of our Shucks experience. So I think that's it for this week. And we're going to run and we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hi everybody, this is David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel here with another segment for What's Been Playing Wednesday. Uh, this week we played a family game called Dinos Not Assembled from Thing 12 Games. And we played it, it was my wife, myself, and my seven-year-old daughter. Now we've played it with my daughter in the past, and she's usually needed some help with the rules and just general strategy ideas, but this time she wanted to try playing without any help from us. So we of course agreed.
Now, in this game, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build three dinosaur exhibits in your part of the museum before anyone else does. And the way you'll do that is you will have uh, some cards in your hands. Each one will have a dinosaur on it, and it will tell you three pieces that that dinosaur needs to have to be able to be built and put into your exhibit. The way you get those pieces is there is a dig site area, and there will be four random dinosaur bone pieces in that. So one of the actions that you can do on your turn is you can choose to take two of those from the dig area and put it in your inventory. You could also choose to steal a dinosaur bone from somebody else if they have one that you want. And you just take it from their board, you put it on your board, flipping it over so that their symbol showing that that piece cannot be stolen from you is showing. Also, the person who had the item stolen from them will have a little security guard meeple placed by their museum so that everyone knows that they cannot steal from that person until someone else has been stolen from. You can also draw a new card to try to find a different dinosaur, perhaps. You can have up to three of those in your hand. So if you already have three and you draw a new one, uh, you just have to discard the one that you don't want. Another thing you could do is if the dig area has really nothing for you, you could choose to clear the dig area. So you'll take all the dinosaur bones off of the dig area and replace them with four more random ones chosen from a bag. Basically, you'll keep taking turns doing this until someone has completed all three dinosaur exhibits, placing a really cool looking dinosaur meeple uh, on the little podium in their museum. And I'm happy to say that my daughter actually beat us both all on her own this time, which is really fantastic. I was really happy for her. Uh, that was really cool because we were, I wasn't sure if she'd be able to memorize all the rules. And honestly, she had the various uh, keywords and such from the game memorized a lot better than I did then or even than I do now, to be honest with you. Another game we played, which is on the very other end of the spectrum, is called Kamigami Battles Rise of the Old Ones. Now, this looks like a pretty regular player versus player deck building game, but it does have some interesting quirks. So as examples, when you buy a card from the Hall of Heroes, which is kind of like their marketplace area, instead of putting it in your discard pile, you put it on top of your draw pile so you know that it will be coming up next. Also, if you've created an empty spot in the Hall of Heroes, You'll draw another card from the deck just like you normally would, but if the card you've drawn is already out there, you just put it on top of that same card that's already in the Hall of Heroes, and then you'll draw another one until you get a card that isn't already out there. So what this means is you always have the same number of choices of things in the marketplace. Additionally, you can win either by depleting everyone else's health to zero and being the last person standing, or by raising your health up to 25. It starts at 15. I assume at that point, uh, to assume that you've become such a powerful uh, old one that nothing can really stop you. The part that makes this really different is other than the uh, Disciple card, which is sort of the uh, the most basic cards you can get, uh, any of the Warrior or the Artifact cards have three symbols in the upper left corner of each card. Uh, one will be larger than the other two, and the large one indicates that that is the symbol that is affiliated with the card that you're playing down. The next card you play, the symbol that that card is affiliated with has to match one of the smaller symbols from the previous card you played. So this is a chain system. So you could conceivably have five cards in your hand that are all great, but if they don't chain together, you might not be able to play them all. This makes it kind of interesting because on one hand it seems like you could really try to plan for this and really know what all cards you have in your hand and what symbols they have and you try to figure out the likelihood that they'll come out together there could be a lot of depth but i'm not sure if that's really the case or if it ends up just being really a lot more random and you're just hoping for good luck 
you know, in most deck building games, you can play down all the cards you have pretty easily and get the effects of them. And sometimes you might get bonuses if other similar cards are out. But this one, you literally can't play a card if you can't chain them together, which means that something that's really basic in other deck building games is a bit more of a struggle in this one, which is kind of odd. We do have a review coming up for this in the next few weeks on the channel, so definitely check that out if you're curious. I do want to address one other thing, which is sort of the elephant in the room when it comes to this uh, series of games. Gods and whatnot and the creatures that you play on your cards, they're all Cthulhu Mythos creatures, but in this game, instead of making them these... Um, indescribable horrors, they've turned them into anime people, and honestly, they're overly sexy anime people. Now, it doesn't get beyond like a, a high PG or a low PG-13 level, I wouldn't say, but some people are probably not going to be very comfortable with that art. I think it's a really odd choice that Japanime Games went with that, just because I feel like it has to be sort of limiting to the audience that will play this game. So I'm not sure how wise that is. Uh, when we do the review, we will be showing the art during the art and components section of that. So if you're wondering if it uh, you know, is on an okay side of the line or if it goes over a line for you, definitely check that out. It is an interesting deck building game. It's just one that's hard to say is necessarily great. It's just sort of unusual. So anyway, I am once again David from the All Games New and Old YouTube channel. You can definitely check me out there. You can follow me on Twitter at All Games New and Old, or you can find me on TikTok at All Games New and Old. I hope to see you one of those places soon. Hey everyone, I'm Royce Coverly, host of Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it's not. And this is What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Look, some games plateau. The strategy unfolds for a while, but ultimately they hit a point where it just simply doesn't get any better. You've maxed out the scoring potential, there aren't any new strategies to discover. The games that fall in this category aren't bad games, in fact, some of them are really good games. They just have a limited lifespan. A, a couple games that sort of fit into this category and leap to my mind are like Lacerda's Lisboa. No, no, not Lisboa. Lisboa is amazing. But I will say Lacerda's Gallerist hits this problem. I find that I hit a strategy and a maximum number of points, and it just doesn't seem to go up from there. Uh, Uwe Rosenberg's At the Gates of Loyang is similar. It, it, once you hit a point, you're just not going to do significantly better. On the other hand, there are some games that just keep getting better. Literally every play leads to new discoveries and strategies. And for me, Russian Railroads is one of those games. Look, I love Russian Railroads. Every time I play, I do a little bit better. Every time I try a new strategy, it's a new and exciting game. If you don't know about Russian Railroads, well, Russian Railroads is a worker placement game with a vaguely trained theme. Uh, you are playing, I guess, as a railroad developer. You're building three train tracks across Russia, as well as a string of factories that support the rail industry. Each player has six workers each turn, and you have the potential to add a coin or two. And really, the coin or two are just like permanent extra workers that you play. If you play them, they go away. But if you don't play them at the end of the turn, you can roll them over to the next turn so you can save them for bigger actions later in the game, for, for instance. The individual actual selection spots require one to three workers. So depending on the options you choose, you may run out of workers before the other players, which is an interesting tactic in and of itself. 
Russian Railroads has a bit of a learning curve. Each track can have up to five different colors on each link. The colors are built on top of one another. Each color scores a different number of points, and only the most valuable color scores for each link in the track. Each link scores every turn, but only if you have a locomotive that can reach that link, otherwise you don't score it. This means that every turn you need to add several categories of scoring opportunities, and over the seven or so turns of the game, you're going to have an escalating point scoring where you might earn 10 to 12 points in the first round, but as much as 130 points in the last round. Final scores are often around 400 points, so there's this massive build-up in scoring. And I'll be honest, reading that out loud, I'm pretty sure I just turned each and every one of you off of this game. Look, I just want you to reconsider. Yes, it sounds dry. Yes, it sounds complicated. Yes, I made it sound that way. But it's a brilliant game. It's easily in my top three of all time. It has several expansions, and all of them add value without losing the brilliance of the original. I mean, German Railroads is my personal favorite expansion, but I would happily play the base game literally any time. It's available in a brand new big box, which has all the expansions, including the not available anywhere else Asian Railroads, which I'll admit is a bit annoying, and maybe I'll talk about that in another episode later down the road. Uh, if you don't want to shell out any money for it, that's fine. It's also free to play on both Board Game Arena and Yukata. So that's Russian Railroads. It's what I've been playing Wednesday, and honestly, it's what I've been playing pretty much every single week. I've got a game of it going on right now on Board Game Arena. It's just that great. Highly recommend it. Despite how I made it sound, I highly suggest you go out and give it a try. It is an incredible game. I'm Royce Calverly. You can hear more from me and various other special guests at Definitely a Board Game Podcast. Other than that, have a great week, everyone, and play some Russian Railroads. Hey there, this is Tim from the Board Game Hot Takes Podcast, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. This week, I'm going to talk about a game that I had a chance to play this weekend called Messina 1347. This game was designed by Royal Fernandez Apricio and Vladimir Succi. This was published by Delicious Games and put out in the North American continent by Rio Grande Games. Messina 1347 is about the Black Plague, and it's about the Black Plague spreading through Europe and finally catching up with this little Italian coastal village called Messina. And uh, basically what you're doing here is you are trying to stop the Black Plague from spreading. This game is a worker placement game, but it's very well disguised as a more interesting Euro. Listen, worker placement's been done a lot, and we don't really need more worker placement that isn't doing anything else interesting. Luckily, Messina 1347 managed to transcend the traditional worker placement mechanism and feel like you're doing something more fun. So the way this is set up is that there is a modular board out in the middle of the, the table. This is gonna be different per player count, but basically you're gonna take a bunch of hex tiles which represent the worker placement spots. You're gonna put them out on the board. There's gonna be four ports around the four corners of this, this modular board. And at the beginning of each round, it's played over about six rounds, you're gonna seed this, this, these modular spaces randomly with either plague tokens 
and or with citizen tiles. Citizens, apparently there are only three types of citizens in Messina. Back in 1347, there were nuns, there were workmen or craftsmen or something like that, maybe carpenters, I don't know. And then there were nobles. So you're going to put these tiles out on the board. Traditional worker placement game, you'd place a worker out in a space, you'd get the benefit of it. That exists here, but also you can take a much bigger turn. You've got three workers to start with. You're going to place one of your workers out on the, one of these hex tiles, and you will get the benefit from it. It might give you some resources. It might let you take a specific action like build something. It might let you move one of your overseer tokens on your personal uh, worker board that allows you to kind of activate some actions you've, you've, you've uh, uh, you know, put up based on putting workers out there. But the other things you can do is that if you go to a space that has a a, a worker on it or a character on it, a citizen on it, you get to pick that citizen up and put it on your citizen board. And then that is there to activate at a later turn. Um, or you can go to a space that has a plague token on it. And if you have fire, which is one of the resources you can collect there, you can get rid of that plague. It moves you up one of the three tracks, these Euro tracks in the game. And that's the popularity track. You would move up that track. You'd get some kind of benefit, oftentimes a bonus, that happens immediately, but also points the higher up you get on that track. And then if there was a, 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 a character there, a, a citizen there, when there's plague there, well, you can't just send your citizen over your worker board because they might have the plague. So you got to quarantine them first. You have four little quarantine spots on your player board and they have two different locations. So you would, you would put them in the first of those locations and then the next turn, beginning of the next turn, you'd move them all over to the next location. And then eventually you'd feel comfortable moving them into your general population and they'd go over to your, your worker board or your, your citizen board. One of the cool things about this, though, is that one of the things you can build with your craftsmen when you activate them or take a build action is you can flip. You, you can basically uh, buy these tiles from the general supply that allow you to upgrade your quarantine tents. Now you can put these quarantine workers, these sick workers to work. I mean, listen, let's face it. They don't actually have the Black Plague or they would have died already. So they're just sitting there doing nothing. Let's give them something to do. So if you can get them something to do, at the end of each round, you're going to do a production action. And that's one of the productions you're going to do is get the benefits from these upgraded quarantine tents. There are also another type of building, these little uh, worker spaces that you can build where you can move your citizen tiles into and they're going to activate production. And the one last thing you can build in this game is a little cart. The reason for building a cart is that later in the game, don't want to do it too early, but you can start to turn in these workers and you can repopulate the city of Messina. So each of the worker placement spaces that are out in this modular board, and by the way, I didn't mention, but this modular board is growing every round. You're going to add one more space there, but on each of these spaces is a cost in workers. And so you can flip over one of the carts that you've built for that round. You can send the, you can take the related workers off your little your uh, your citizen board and put them out onto the main board and kind of fulfill that order and that's gonna be worth end game points but you also put your little tile marker there if anyone else goes there for the rest of the game you're going to get two points for it so there's a really nice art to this game where at first you're kind of collecting resources trying to build up your engine a little bit but at the end of the game it's not just about getting points it's about like filling orders that took you a while to kind of collect and, and make work now the the other thing i want to talk about a little bit more is this this, uh, this citizen board I mentioned. This is a beautiful little component. It's kind of a private player board and it has a whole bunch of tracks. There's uh, uh, about 18 different spaces where you can move these, these citizens that you've collected over the course of the game and put them on spaces. And there's a whole bunch of different actions. 
But the only way these actions trigger is by taking a specific type of action where these three different overseers, the nuns overseer, the, you know, the, uh, the workmen overseer, as well as the nobles overseer to kind of move through these tracks. And as they move along these tracks, their benefits get bigger and bigger. They can start to activate one worker next to them, or they can activate any worker in a specific region, or they can activate two different workers. So it's a very fun puzzle to kind of try to build out where you're putting these citizens, which benefits you're trying to get from them, and how frequently you activate them. And that all ties into this whole element of eventually trying to you know, fill up your little uh, cabins that you've built so that you can try to get income from them, and then eventually send them out to repopulate the city. And there's this balance of when do I take them? When do I use them to activate the initial actions? When do I want them for income? And when do I send them back out to the city? So what is really a essentially a worker placement game turns into so many more fun decisions. This game was great. I loved it. This was a, a big hit for me from Vladimir Suchi as someone who really loved underwater cities but was really disappointed by Praga Kaput Regni. I'm really happy to see Vladimir Suchi back on his on his high horse and on his design game. Really enjoyed this game. So if you're interested in a mid to heavyweight Euro that is actually pretty breezy, moves quickly, and is not too hard to get into, if you understand the basics of resource management and worker placement, I would recommend checking out Messina 1347. Ignore the box cover. It's one of the worst box covers of all time, but otherwise this game is very fun and really worth checking out. If you'd like to check out our podcast, you can find us on any podcast platform by searching for Board Game Hot Takes. And we're also very active on Twitter at BG underscore Hot Takes. Hope you enjoyed this review. Look forward to interacting with you more. Take care. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, helping you make your game nights better. This past week, I got two games to the table. One for the first time ever, and another where we're trying out an expansion for the first time. So it was a week of news. Let's start off with Aldabas, Doors of Cartagena from Grand Gamers Guild. Now, this is a tableau building game where you're filling a block by placing various door cards, trying to gain influence in various suits. It's based on how the city of Cartagena uses these ornate door knockers to indicate wealth status and the occupation of the residents. Now, we've been playing this one quite a bit recently in prep for a detailed review, which we'll be recording tonight on Twitch. And it'd be cool if you joined us for that, actually. What was new this past week, though, is that we've been trying out the expansion that came in our copy of the game. Now, this is a bit confusing, but our copy is the Kickstarter version kindly sent up from Gen Con by Graham Gamers Guild. So it included upgraded coins in this mini expansion with three new professions. Now, the odd bit is that right now this is the only version of the game that's out there. It's not like there's a retail version you can buy that doesn't have this stuff. Though one may be coming, if this version sells well enough and they do a second printing, Grand Gamers Guild is planning to do a retail version. But what I'm talking about tonight is the Kickstarter exclusive content here that isn't really exclusive because it's the only version you can get, and you don't have to back anything because you can order it directly from Grand Gamers Guild, and I've even seen it on online stores. Anyway, that's, that's not what I'm here to talk about. Actually, I want to talk about this expansion. Uh, so what this adds is three new occupations or three new suits to the game. With this, you get bankers, which can steal coins from your opponent's vaults and will give you points for having coins used as influence at the end of the game. Merchants would give you extra coins when you take coins from the bank and will give you points for collecting similar door colors at the end of the game. 
And finally, Doctors, which let you swap cards in your tableau and the market with cards in your hand and just give you points at the end of the game for having the most. Now, we found all of these to be interesting to play with, though I gotta say they felt a little less polished than the court game occupations. We did have a couple rule questions come up, and we did a bit of Googling, and we managed to find answers, but we didn't have that happen with the base game at all, so it just kind of felt like these hadn't been tried and play-tested nearly as much as the base ones, which makes sense as a Kickstarter bonus. Now, what I actually liked the most about these was the fact you don't just shuffle them in with the rest of the cards. Instead, for every new occupation you put in, you're going to pull out nine cards from another occupation to replace them. Now, while a little bit of a pain to set up, what this lets you do is greatly affect how the game will play. Like, If you don't like backstabbing in your games, if you don't like player versus player conflict, you can now remove all the cards that steal things from other players. Now, if your group does like it, you now have one additional card to steal, the banker that steals from vaults. You can throw that in for a more confrontational game with more player interaction. Similarly, like if you want a longer game, you can remove the cards that you get extra coins when played, especially the one that gives you three coins when played. And well, if you want things faster, you can add in the merchant so that more coins are going to get taken in the game will end shorter and so on. I really dig the way this expansion adds some sliders to my copy of Aldabas, which is going to make it more appealing to some game groups. And for me in particular, there's a couple different groups I play with. I'm going to play with different sets of cards with each of those groups. Now, the other game I got to try, and again, this is for the first time ever, was Mountains Out of Molehills, which the op was cool enough to send our way. This is an abstract strategy programmed movement game with amazing table prep. It features a two-tiered board that uses the game box. So you have your acrylic standy moles moving around on the bottom layer, and you'll be placing molehill blocks on the top level onto every space your moles move down below, which is just cool and thematic. Now, gameplay revolves around drafting movement cards, which include your usual program movement things like turn right, turn left, you turn and move one, move forward one, move forward three, and so on. Um... What's going to happen is at the end of every round, after everyone's moved, you're going to get points for every brick in molehills that have your color at the bottom. So every molehill you control, you're going to get points for. And then there's some neat rules where the molehills can only be so tall, and that ramps up. In the first round of the game, it can be two tall, then three tall, then three tall, then four tall, then four tall, then five. And what happens if your molehills get too high, they topple. And what's neat is you actually take the bricks and you put them on top of other nearby molehills, which can then cause those to get too big, which can then topple as well and get a cool kind of chain effect going on. It's actually pretty cool. Now, at this point, though, we've only played one game, and it went pretty well. Uh, the physicality of this game really is awesome. I cannot complain at all about the components and the look. This is fantastic table presence. And the height of the board is actually really clear and, and nice to be able to see both layers of the board without having to move your head around or anything like that. It was actually really well done. Now, the actual program movement worked pretty well, but we were playing two players. And during that game, we ended up having some turns where basically nothing happened. Uh, due to the fact there were no turning cards coming up in the draft, or a round where there were only turning cards and no move forward. It just made for very uninteresting rounds. Now, I'm personally thinking this might be a two-player problem because the number of cards you put out is based on the number of players, and with more cards, there's more odds you won't have a market like that. But you know what? Only more plays will tell. I am looking forward to trying this one uh, with more players to see if it does fix that problem. Now, maybe it's just part of the game, and this is kind of a, it's an abstract strategy game, and there's definitely some tactics and strategy, but it's also kind of silly, and it's about moles building molehills, and maybe I just have to embrace the randomness. Again, I'll only know if I play it some more. Well, that's it for what I played this past week. 
Remember, join me and our host, Sean, tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop for a full review of Aldabas, an answer to one of your gaming and game night questions, and more. Note, if you can't make it live, watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast to drop Tuesday mornings on your podcatcher of choice, or watch the video version, which also drops Tuesday, on YouTube. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano. Good day, and game on. Hey everybody, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And as you can hear, no, I am not holding my nose while I'm talking. I'm still a little stuffed up from a cold, a regular cold. Wow, who knew? Um, uh, so yeah, I'm just going to save my voice and, and, and my whole, you know, echoey head chamber right now. Uh, I can hear myself way too much, and wow, do I sound annoying. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I've, I didn't ha really have a chance to play some games. I played games with Daniel, uh, usually in the morning uh, when he goes to school, the strike, and I've talked about strike, it's a fun game. But uh, yeah, but what I wanted to say, though, is thank you so much for listening, and thank you always to the content creators who um, come together every week and uh, provide such awesome awesome accounts of the games that they've been playing. So that being said, keep your stick on the ice, wipe your nose, wash your hands, and take care out there, eh?